Hello, you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. Just before we delve into today's episode, I want to make an exciting announcement. If you are a dietitian, nutrition professional, or student, the British Dietetic Association Industry Specialist Group has officially been launched a couple of weeks ago. This group represents dietitians working in all areas of industry, whether that's research and development, marketing or regulatory affairs, for example. If you'd like to find out more about the group and the committee, we will link to the website and the social media handles in the show notes. And also just to say it's not too late to join the committee. We have two vacancies open. So head to our socials if you'd like to find out more. Now, back to today's big dietetic debate. I am delighted to be joined by registered nutritionist and regulatory affairs expert, Sue Aldrieve. Having been a consultant in this area for 11 years and worked with probiotic companies such as Simprove, Sue is a perfect guest for this episode as we explore challenges in communicating the science of probiotics to consumers. We'll explore why the word probiotic itself is considered a health claim and the impact that this has on consumers and health professionals alike. Before we go any further, Sue, I'm going to hand over to you to tell us a bit more about yourself. Thank you, Harriet, and thanks for inviting me here today um, to have this conversation with you. So, yes, I am a food nutrition consultant. I've got over 30 years experience in working around food and regulations, and it's been a very mixed 30 years. Um, I started out working for the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food and got to do lovely things like briefing ministers, but also sampling grass in Yorkshire. I worked for a while as a nutrition scientist at Sainsbury's and was lucky enough to be um, a spokesperson for their company. And I've also worked for um, global companies as well in the field of food supplements. So I'm passionate about food, nutrition and training. I balance that with a home life with a high maintenance husband, a highly demanding, almost adult son and a highly curious and rather noisy additional teenage son, as well as three guinea pigs, two horses and an opinionated chicken. You've got your work cut out there, I can tell, Sue. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you today. As you know, before we delve into our discussions, we like to ask our guests our quickfire questions. So my first question to you, Sue, is do you have a favourite season? And if so, what season is it? I'm quite fickle and I enjoy each new season as it comes. But the one I'm most reluctant to see the end of is spring. So I would have to say spring is my favourite. And those mornings are getting lighter. Evenings are getting longer. So spring is definitely on its way. Second question, Sue. Do you have any surprising talents or hobbies that we might not know about? I don't know whether they'd be called talents. Um, I have some interesting hobbies. I love going out horse riding with one of my horses. And I also dabble in things like lino cuts and cake baking and decorating. You sometimes have to have a good imagination to work out what my cake is meant to look like, but I enjoy the experience. As long as it tastes good, that's all that matters, right? And finally, tell us about a good book that you've recently read. A book I read a short while ago um, 
was called The Offing by Benjamin Myers. I don't know if you've read it. It's just beautifully evocative and full of hope. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for giving us that insight, Sue. Now let's delve into the world of probiotics. So I'm sure many of our listeners are, of course, well aware of what probiotics are. But for those who need a quick refresher, can you remind us how do we define a probiotic and how do they differ to this term prebiotics? Okay, so a probiotic is a live microorganism, which when administered in adequate amounts, confers a health benefit on the host. So it's the actual bacteria or um, yeast and things like that. A prebiotic, I always say, is the food for the microorganism. So it tends to be things like um, some of the fibres that we'll consume. Thank you very much for that. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that probiotics is something that everybody should be incorporating into their diet? And if so, why? Um, I think there is no consensus at the moment uh, that probiotics should definitely be introduced and used regularly in everyone's diets. But there are definitely um, growing areas where we can see that they are beneficial. So, for example, um, as a, a an option for management in things like IBS, and also we're seeing increasing use of them in association with um, the prescription of antibiotics. So I think it's a space to wait and see. I don't think there's absolute consensus as yet. Okay, that's interesting. Obviously, there is a lot of talk about probiotics, particularly on social media, in news outlets. So going back to what we mentioned in the introduction, uh, we're really talking today about the challenges of communicating the science of probiotics to consumers. So with that in mind, do you think that the general public actually understand what probiotics are? The awareness is probably increasing, but I went and looked for any sort of independent data on this. Because we all have our own opinion, and particularly when you work in the area, you think, oh, yes, everyone knows what that is. But actually, I came across a survey that was done. Um, it was carried out in 2021, published in 2022, and it was done in 16 different countries, about 16,000 people. And when asked, about three quarters of people said they were either partially or very aware of probiotics. So you think, great, that's 75%. However, in that same survey, 50% of people also voiced the opinion that all yogurts were probiotics. So I think perhaps there's a mismatch between um, where consumers think they're at and what their understanding really is. Yes. And I wonder also um, knowledge of health professionals. I'm sure, you know, lots of dietitians talk about probiotics every day in clinical practice, but interesting what you said about yogurts, um, people thinking that they're probiotics, because I've certainly heard and seen on social media, lots of advice, make sure you're eating yogurts because it's a good source of probiotics. So back to that awareness of probiotics, do you think it's increased in recent years amongst the public? And if so, why might that be? I do think it has increased. And I'm not just saying that optimistically. I do think it has because for some of the reasons you've just mentioned that there's a lot more out there on social media. Um, and also, you know, it's becoming a little bit more acceptable to talk about poo. And I think whenever we, we talk about probiotics, that subject always comes up. And we've even seen, you know, some of the television programs that are coming out covering issues around toilet habits and um, 
complications around that. So, yes, I do think there's increasing awareness around probiotics. Now, you say there's increasing awareness, but there's also a lot of restrictions when it comes to talking about probiotics to consumers. So my understanding is that the European Commission have deemed the term probiotic itself to be a health claim. So can you help to set the scene and explain to us a little bit about what a health claim is and the role of the European Commission? Yes. So a health claim is any claim uh, that states suggests or implies that a relationship exists between a food uh, or a, a component of that food or a nutrient um, and health. So it's linking be- between the food or its constituents and a health outcome. And the Commission has a role in making legislation. It it kind of makes the legislation happen, if you like. Uh, it can come up with um, a reason for why legislation might be needed and arrange consultations and it can propose regulations and then implement them once um, they the decision has been made by the European Parliament and Council. So the Commission is really the one that, that makes it all happen. Okay, that's interesting to know, but more importantly, Sue, do you think it was the right decision or or what are your thoughts on the European Commission um, determining probiotic to be a health claim? Uh, Well, I think we need to look back at where that came from. And that's actually not written into any piece of legislation. It came about because of a guidance document that was issued in 2007, following on from the publication of the Nutrition and Health Claims Regulations in 2006. And this guidance document was trying to set out examples of what was or wasn't a health claim. And one example that they gave of a non-permitted health claim was the term probiotic. So that's where this situation has arisen from. Now, it is it is a bit of a difficult one, isn't it? Because the, by its very definition, a probiotic is a live microorganism that when consumed in adequate amounts, confers a health benefit on the host. So it sounds very like a health claim. But I think it's it's one of those things where is that what a consumer sees it as? And we always need to come back to what is it the consumer understands? And does the consumer see the term to mean, oh, it's going to do me good? Or are they just looking for it as a signpost to find the products they've perhaps been advised they need? Because, of course, it's only in commercial communications that the term probiotic has been prohibited. And therefore, we are still seeing that term used really widely, you know, by people, um, general public, by healthcare professionals under some um, guidelines. And also, you know, influencers, if I was a celebrity not connected to a product, I could talk about probiotics all day long. So I think it's, it's, the fact that we've got this rather confused situation um, that is something that needs exploring further. Now, I can imagine working for probiotic companies that that can be really quite challenging when it comes to regulatory affairs and marketing. I'm sure you have lots of heated discussions between those divisions. So can you tell us from your experience of working with probiotic companies, how does this affect their ability to market and communicate their products to consumers? It does result in a heck of a lot of of conversations and quite a few heated discussions. Um, And I think what we should also recognise is that although there's been this 
this guidance that the term probiotic is a health claim and therefore cannot be used. There are companies that are choosing to still use the term. And I think we're seeing more of that now. So what we've ended up with is that some companies, perhaps who are new to the arena, got less of a reputation to look after, more of a win to get by clearly signposting their products. They're still using the term probiotic. You've got other companies that may be more established who are not. So it doesn't really help the customer to see all the products that are on the market. If you are a company like Simprove, who chooses in the most part not to use the term probiotic in consumer-facing communications, then you do have to get really creative <laughs> with how you can help customers reach that conclusion under their own merit. So it, it can be through um, adverts and, and messaging that creates curiosity so people go and do their own investigations so yeah it's it's more challenging but you have to get more creative that's very interesting and that comes on to my next question which was going to be about how companies such as improve navigate this legislation yet still manage to communicate the benefits of probiotics to consumers so you gave a few nice examples i've noticed lots of companies for example having healthcare professional sections of their websites can you perhaps talk us through in a bit more detail how companies can attempt to do that marketing within those restrictions Yes, and you have raised a really, really good point. Um, I think it's absolutely critical. If you are a probiotic company who is passionate about their product, believes that they've got good quality science behind the product, it's really, really critical to be engaging with healthcare professionals because healthcare professionals may well be recommending their patients to go and take a probiotic. But I've just said that some products may be labelled probiotic, some may not. So the poor patient is not equipped to know the full scope of the products that are out there. So, yes, probiotic companies do need to be engaging with healthcare practitioners um, through specific healthcare practitioner focused activities. Um, in addition to that, for consumer facing, you know, we can point out the types of bacteria that are in a product. And so customers may have heard, oh, well, I need to look for lactobacillus acidophilus or another type of, of um, live microorganism. So they can look for the words like live and strains and the names of the bacteria as well. So there are actions that we can take around that. And sometimes we can do... Um, you know, try and encourage word of mouth to get out there, do PR campaigns that raise awareness of a brand so that people say, well, what exactly is that brand? And go and do their own research. So there's a, there's a few other examples there, I hope. Yeah, definitely. You've really given us some food for thought. Excuse the pun. Um, you mentioned some phrases and terms there, like live bacteria, for example. Are there any other terms or phrases that come to mind that companies tend to use without actually referring to this term probiotic? Yes. Uh, the ones I've seen are things like live bacteria product or multi-strain bacteria product or live and active, live cultures, um, we can also see things like 
sometimes even more creative, like the word polybiotic, for example. So there's more words coming out as more and more companies are trying to signpost without using the actual term probiotic. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because terms like cultures and um, friendly bacteria, it just doesn't sound that glamorous, I don't think, to the consumer. Now, from your experience and in your opinion, Sue, do you think that this banning of the use of the term probiotic in consumer marketing is helpful for the consumer or do you think it's causing more confusion than good? I do think it's adding to confusion because if you, if particularly if you are a consumer who has been advised by an HCP to take a probiotic, you then go out and you're, you're expecting, you know, if I said to you, go and eat more fruits and vegetables, you would know where to go and find those fruits and vegetables. And they'd be beautifully signposted in the greengrocers, the market, the supermarket, be very easy to find. But if you tell someone to go and have a probiotic, they're going to find products called probiotics, but they're not going to find all of them. And I I believe that's acting against the interest of the consumer. So on that note, how can we help to guide the consumer towards choosing the right probiotic product? I know, for example, that in the NICE clinical guidelines for IBS, um, they mention probiotics and therefore dietitians may want to discuss trialing a probiotic with their patient. But when the patient gets to a shop, and I've been there myself in Holland and Barrett, when you're faced with a whole shelf of probiotic products, how on earth do you as a health professional advise a patient to go about choosing the right probiotic? Can you give us some practical hints and tips? Yes, most definitely. And I think this is where we as HCPs need to make sure that if we're in a role where we might be required to recommend a probiotic, that we have done a little bit of work ourselves, that we have engaged with the various companies out there. I'm not saying all of them, but with the ones that have actually committed to science and research to back their products and that we understand what's in those products and what the science is behind them. We can tell consumers, oh, go and look for the word probiotic or live and active cultures or multi-strain or bacteria or friendly bacteria. And that will help to a degree. But if we can also say that you go and look for specific brands, I know we can't recommend individual ones, but if we can give an overview of ones that have maybe got some scientific evidence for the particular um, benefit that we're trying to get for our patients, if we can direct them towards ones that have actually got science, then that's going to be helping our patients make a more informed and hopefully a, a choice that's more likely to lead to a good outcome for them, which is what we all want. Yes, definitely. Um, and in terms of the wording that health professionals are using with their patients when they're recommending probiotics, do you have any suggestions? Do you think that they should perhaps consider changing the way that they have these discussions? And if so, how? Uh, I think, I mean, obviously you have to stick to your guidelines. So I'm not going to say throw the guidelines out the window. Um, but I would say make sure as an HCP, if you're in that role, that you understand what the term means uh, have a, a rough idea of the types of products that are out there, the formats that they can come in. So you're not just saying to someone, I'll go and look for yogurts, but that you know that it, it might be something that's delivered in a yogurt type drink, or it might be a water-based food supplement. It might be 
in capsules. So helping your customer to understand the types of products that, that they should be looking for and then being able to give them those alternative words. And if you can talk about particular brands that have got research in the area of the health outcome that you're trying to address, all of those actions would be a really good way forward. But you know, if you are an HCP and you don't know too much, do reach out to the companies, the ones that are committed to science and who want to help you make a difference to your patients will be more than willing to um, share their information with you. Thank you for that useful advice, Sue. Um, now, you talked about um, being evidence-based when recommending and selecting probiotic products. Now, we've seen that probiotics is an incredibly competitive space. I think there's probably new products launching every day, if not week. So do you think that that's caused a problem? Are you seeing an emergence of companies that market themselves as being probiotic products, but that perhaps haven't got that robust evidence base behind them? Yes, most definitely. I And I don't think this is to do with whether the term probiotic is permitted or not. I think that perhaps if we allowed the term probiotic, we could then have criteria that would have to be met by products that were wanting to occupy that space. And we know that a lot of the trade organisations that have probiotic relationships um, are pushing for this and have maybe set up a sort of voluntary approach. So there are things out there like about choosing um, a strain that is, is safe goes without saying, you would hope, um, and naming that strain and making sure that the amounts of the bacteria there are going to be meaningful. So if you are taking a, a strain of bacteria and putting it into a product, are you putting in the amount that was used in a study that you're going to reference, for example? Is it in a delivery format that is the same as was used in that study? So I think there's a lot there that we could be doing to set criteria that would help give confidence to to customers and also to HCPs um, about what a probiotic really is and, and to have some sort of confidence that there is going to be a standard um, that would apply rather than it perhaps just being, oh, yes, what else can I add to my range? Oh, we're missing a probiotic. I'll, I'll stick a few CFU in a capsule and be done with it. So I think I think we need a few more criteria. Yeah, it's certainly become the buzzword, I think, that's floating around at the moment with supplements. So how do these products that have got a very strong evidence base, like Simpru, for example, how do they stand out um, amongst the crowd when you've got so many competitor products that perhaps haven't got that evidence base, like you said? To me, it's all about making sure that you speak to the right people, that you're engaging with all levels of people. And it can be really surprising about how relationships can help with kind of that word of mouth. Um, we are very limited as, you know, I'm talking now as if I'm from Simpru, but from a commercial point of view, you no, know, we do have restrictions. But if people have a good experience with your product, then they're more likely to share that experience. So making sure that you've got a good product to start with um, is absolutely critical and then it will help itself. And like we talked about earlier, engaging with HCPs, you know, having a program where you can really help 
doctors and dietitians to understand what is a probiotic and how to get a little bit more discerning to maybe give them an opportunity to get their hands on the product and try it for themselves. You know, we all have that personal curiosity. And I think particularly as nutritionists and dietitians, you really need to have that. Um, and then, yeah, just just trying to get the word out there through um, marketing campaigns that invoke a bit of curiosity. But I think if you are a brand that is absolutely passionate about your product and it's not just another one to add to your range but if you're passionate about it and you have committed to a science and research program and you can therefore share that program as well and um, that's going to make you stand out from the crowd mm, good advice sir thank you very much sue now just moving on in terms of um other supplement products so not just probiotics do they encounter the same issues that we have with probiotics in terms of this uh, restriction around what health claims can be made or is or is it different and why so is it different? Sometimes it can feel like probiotics are the only ones uh, in this situation, but absolutely not the case. Um, you know, all the botanical claims are on hold. So if you've got a product that's got botanicals in it, you, we're still waiting for, um, you know, any of those claims to be reviewed. And in addition to that, if you've got a complex food, it's actually been much harder. The claims that have been authorised to date have tended to be for relatively simple, easy to define single substances. So we think about vitamins or minerals, things like that, very clearly defined, a good level of evidence behind them. But it's this sort of... Um, characterization of the, the the substance itself that can inhibit a chance for a health claim. So for example, um, there were quite a few claim applications put in for fruit and vegetables and certain health outcomes. And actually they did not advance because the opinion was that the fruit and vegetables as a an item was insufficiently characterized. And I guess that's because there could be a lot of fluidity around um, what fruits and vegetables could be. To me, what I eat as fruit and veg could be very different from everyone else. So, yes, we're not alone. I think there's been around 4,000 health claims authorised out of over 44,000 that were originally submitted. So wow. there's a few more to go, yeah. <laughs> I think that really puts it into perspective, doesn't it? Um, what a challenge it is to work in this area when you're faced with marketing a, a food supplement like a probiotic. Now, in the EU, as we've discussed, and also obviously the UK, um, the term probiotic is generally not an authorised health claim. But having said that, some countries more recently, such as Spain, have begun to challenge this and implement their own guidance. Um, and my understanding is that there was some hope that after Brexit, the UK might follow suit and therefore companies could use this term probiotic in their consumer marketing. Do you think that that's realistic? Is that something that may happen in the future in the UK? I think it's definitely an area to watch. Um, I mean, from from where I sit, I notice that at the moment there doesn't seem to be that much of a campaign against companies using the term probiotic. I think we're all noticing that term being bandied around more and more. So to me, I, I'm wondering where this is going to go. And yes, like you say, Spain, Italy, France, the Netherlands, Czech Republic are all now permitting the use of the term probiotic more as a sort of 
a category um, signpost than as a health claim, but they've relaxed their rules um, and sort of changed their position. So I am quietly hopeful that we will be seeing something along those lines in the UK at some point. I, I still don't know timelines. I wouldn't like to gamble on that. But yes, it's an area I'm definitely watching. Interesting. So that's a real watch this space. Um, what has to change in order for the UK to make that kind of regulatory change? Well, there would have to be consultations around the concept initially. Um, so all interested parties would get their opportunity to comment. Um, and then it would, I I believe, have to go through um, in some form of legislation so that there was uh, recognition of this as a term that could be used. Uh, although I suppose it could be in the UK because we're now not part of Europe it could be simply that the guidance could be changed so that the term probiotic was no longer used as an example of a prohibited health claim. So it could go one of two ways. It could either go the legislative route or it could go um, sort of just as removal from the guidance and, a, and a, an update to the guidance about what is or isn't a health claim. Wow. I mean, a simple change to wording and guidance, but a huge impact on the industry, I can imagine. Now, probiotics have already come a huge way. Um, they were officially recognized by the UN and the World Health Organization since 2002. But what do you think the future of probiotics looks like, Sue? It's it's clear that they have come a long way and that there's a lot more interest in them and their potential role in health. Um, we are very aware that in a number of European countries, they um, there is now this practice that if pro if antibiotics are prescribed, there's also a recommendation to take probiotics. So I think it's really interesting how we're sort of seeing this shift in how probiotics are seen and being accepted as a way to help people manage um, manage their health. And like we were just talking about this this change in attitude in various countries in Europe, meaning that the term is no longer seen as possibly a health claim, but more as a kind of a, a descriptor for a category. I think that's going to be something that we're going to see more of. I've just said, I hope in the UK, uh, but I think we might even see it at a European level. Yes, I, I think we'll all be keeping our eyes peeled for any um, changes or announcements in the coming months or perhaps years with probiotics. Now, just to, to wrap up this episode, Sue, is there any new or exciting or particularly interesting research currently underway or that's been published that you'd like to put the spotlight on today? In terms of probiotics in general, for me, I think this recognition that we've now got of the sort of um, the gut organ axes and the bi-directional communication is, is really fascinating. And I look at the research that Simprove is committed to at the moment, and it's quite diverse. You know, we're looking at things from neurological health through to skin health and, and the role of the microbiome in, in all of those. So to me, that's really fascinating. Um, there is also more consideration, and, and there was a paper published very recently, I think in the last couple of weeks, looking at safety considerations around probiotics as well. So that's another area that I'm greatly interested in and whether that can sort of tie in to some of these criteria 
but it would be really helpful to have more established and accepted behind the use of the term probiotic. And Sue, just to um, finish on a positive note, could you um, perhaps summarise what you'd like the main takeaway message to be from your podcast today for anybody who's listening? Oh, great. Um, I would like anyone who's listening to this, if you are a healthcare practitioner, to really help yourself to information about probiotics and to understand the different products that are out there, you know, maybe the top five, and to know what evidence there is behind them and to understand that not all probiotics will have the same level of information, but you can help yourself and your patients if you make yourself more aware and familiar with the research behind those products. And beyond that, um, yeah, join me in having hope for um, the future of the term probiotic and hopefully it perhaps being able to be used as a signpost for our consumers in the UK in the future. Well, that's been a fascinating discussion, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So I hope you all found that useful. A huge thank you to our guest, Sue, and also to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare practitioners. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon.